I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you and your spouse are awaiting the birth of your first child. And it's getting towards the time when she's going to deliver the child and you receive the notice that you need to take a trip you weren't planning on taking. In fact, you're going to have to gather everything up and plan on being gone probably for several months. And it's not like it is today where you can um, take a flight and get where you need to go and get a hotel room and a rental car and, and live life more or less the way you would normally. Instead, what you need to do is gather up your belongings, gather up what you plan to use for the next several months, load it onto a donkey or some other animal, and walk 90 miles on foot from where you live in Nazareth to where you need to go through the government-regulated census in Bethlehem. 90 miles. And the terrain isn't easy. This isn't a paved road. You're walking on dirt paths. You don't do 90 miles in one day. So not only are you walking, not only are you walking with an animal, not only are you eight or nine months pregnant, but worst of all, you're also camping along the way. There's nowhere to pull in. There's no truck stop. There's, there's no place to get food along the way. You prepare everything, and as a result, you're thoroughly exhausted by the time you get to your destination. If, if, if you're tired just traveling today with all of our modern conveniences, imagine how exhausted you would be after several days of walking. And then, if you're able to imagine such a thing, you're also eight or nine months pregnant. Well, that's obviously what was going on with Mary and Joseph. And when Mary and Joseph finally do arrive in Bethlehem, I want you to imagine this. No one puts them up. Now, why is that unusual? Is it because Bethlehem was just overcrowded? Not necessarily. In fact, the Scripture says that Joseph was supposed to go back to Bethlehem because that's where his house and lineage was. That's where his people were. That's where his family was. That's where his clan was from. Maybe some of you know what that's like to be from a town where your relatives didn't move away. You're, you're all still in that town. You're known in that town. Your parents are there, and your aunts and uncles are there, and your cousins are there. And when you go back home, you're not just going back home to see your folks, you're going back home to see the whole family. And that can be really an exciting time. You get to get caught up with the uncles and the aunts and the cousins and the grandparents, and you go back to all those old places that you used to play when you were a kid and the restaurants that you would enjoy, and it's a time of celebration. It's really sentimental and nostalgic. But when Joseph goes back to his hometown, it's not like that. In fact, um, Joseph has nowhere to go. Now, the Scriptures don't reveal very much about that day when Christ is born. Of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, two of the Gospels mention nothing about it. Uh, the other two Gospels that do, Matthew and Luke, one focuses primarily on 
the shepherds in the birth scene, the other one's on the Magi. So really what we have here is a lot of um, white space and not a lot of text. But here's what we can put together. Joseph didn't exactly go back into Bethlehem into the welcoming arms of his clan. Why? Well, again, we don't know for certain, but I have a feeling it has to do with the woman he was with. You see, in those days, people didn't have the scriptures and nobody knew that this woman to whom he was betrothed, as the text says, it doesn't even present him as if they were married. It was well known they were not married and yet she was not only pregnant, but very pregnant, as we might say. It wasn't concealed. So you've got Joseph and this woman who most of the people in the town would have thought he had either had some immoral relationship with or was a fool to stay with. In fact, we know from the text that, that Joseph was willing to divorce her, to separate from her, to break this legal bond that existed between them. But it wasn't until the angel appeared to him and said, no, what is going on inside of her is from God that he believed. Imagine trying to explain that to your parents. Oh, I hear Mary's pregnant. Yeah, but it's not what you think. Oh, really? No, really, an angel came to me and said that God put the baby inside her. Oh, really? Now, even in our culture, that might be scandalous, but in that culture back then, it was utterly and completely devastating, not only to the people involved, but also to the parents and the family and the clan. And I think at least one of the reasons why Joseph and Mary were trying to find a place to stay that night is because really people wouldn't take them in. And so they find themselves looking for shelter at an inn. And an inn was not a hotel. An inn was not a place where you went to get away. An inn was not a place that had all the luxuries. An inn was a place where you went if you had nowhere else to go. And if you were in a town where you had nowhere else to go, it meant that you were a complete outcast. Inns were not the place where people went voluntarily. Inns were where you went when there was nowhere else to go. And not only were they at an inn, but the inn was full, and therefore they were put out in the stable. nine months pregnant and put out in the stable. Now, I know the nativity scenes are made to look really nice, but stables weren't nice. Stables were small and they were cramped and they had animals in them, usually the animals that you didn't want to leave out during the night. And chances are, if you were bringing in animals into a stable during the night, it was because it was cold. And so crammed into this little space, you had these animals and you had a feeding trough, which was called a manger, it was a trough, but I think putting baby Jesus in a trough doesn't sound as nice as a manger. And since we don't use mangers today, we envision it being a crib, but it wasn't a crib. It wasn't a bassinet. It wasn't like what I was put into when I was brought home with all of the lace and the frills and the stuff like that. This was a rough wooden box that held feed. And so this young woman in her late teens in the darkness, in the utter darkness, cold, terrified, begins to feel the contractions, and over the course of that day, gives birth to a baby with no help from anyone. Now that scene is usually what we think of when we think of Christmas and we think of the nativity, but it's easy to overlook the fact that these two young people 
even though they may have been bearing the shame of the misunderstanding that probably every one of us would have had too regarding that pregnancy, were not therefore going to reject everything that God had called them to do and live as outcasts. They knew that in his eyes they had done nothing wrong. They, they knew in his eyes that this was righteous. The Holy Spirit and the angels told them that this was from God. And so what they did eight days later, and there's no indication that they moved out of the stable, is they made their way the 6.2 miles walking up to Jerusalem. To give you some idea, that's like setting out from here and walking east to San Marcos or walking west all the way to the coast, and then up a mile. It wasn't exactly around the corner, and she had just given birth to a baby, but eight days later, they did what they were supposed to do in accordance with the law, and they go up to Jerusalem. And there, they meet this man, Simeon. And Simeon says the most remarkable thing. He, he says that God had told him that he was going to be kept alive until he saw the coming of the Messiah. Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to be the king of Israel that rode in and rescued them from the oppression of the Romans. But God has revealed that the king has come, and Simeon's going to circumcise the king as they were to do after the eighth day. And as he holds this little baby, born of this teenager, and word spreads quickly, even in Jerusalem. No doubt, he was aware of the circumstances. In fact, the circumstances of Jesus' birth followed him all the way through his life, even to the point of his earthly ministry when he was in his 30s, and the people said he wasn't a legitimate preacher because he wasn't a legitimate child. And in spite of all of this, Simeon picks up this little one and says that not only has God allowed me to see the coming of Messiah, but he's allowed me to see the coming of the light to the Gentiles. From the very moment of Simeon's revelation and interpretation of the Old Testament, which is what a prophet was in those days, remember, because the prophetess Anna did the same thing. She and he would tell people the truth of God's word, they weren't making up new prophecies. He is saying this is the fulfillment. He says this is what Isaiah 42 was speaking of. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says this is what Isaiah was looking forward to. This baby, this child. Yes, this child will come to be the king of Israel. But I love the fact that he is so clear that the child is also the light to the Gentiles. And we've spent the last several weeks in Romans chapter 9 through 11 explaining the fact that the gospel is a light to the Gentiles, that God in his mercy opened up the door of the covenant with Israel to make a way for even Gentiles to be grafted in. And the reason why I think it is so important for us to tie together what we've learned in the book of Romans with what was just read to you from the narrative in Luke is that everything that we enjoy as Gentile believers today, the reason we can celebrate Christmas is because God sent his son, not just for Jewish people, but for Gentiles as well. Now, there's a consequence of that. There's an expectation built into that. And with that nativity as sort of the backdrop for everything, I want to open up God's Word today back in the book of Romans, and I want us to just tie together these two important texts. 
And we're just going to introduce really Romans 12, 1 to 8, because I want to spend more time next week discussing it in detail. But if you have your Bibles, open them to Romans 12. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning in just a brief exposition of the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. I know that um, during Christmas, oftentimes we have visitors here, so if you are visiting with us and you're not normally here at this church, or maybe you're not normally in church at all, I just want to welcome you. I'm grateful that you're here. You are welcome here, and we hope that during your time you will witness and observe and be blessed by not only the singing, but also the explanation of God's Word and the hope in the gospel, because that's really where everything hinges. Uh, We are here together as people who experience the hope of the gospel, the gospel that saves sinners, the gospel that brings the light to Gentiles, the gospel that says, in reality, if you knew yourself as well as God knows you, you realize you're far worse than you think. And that says at the same time, if you saw yourself the way God sees you, you are also an object of his mercy and his grace. And if you put your faith in Christ, it's irrelevant what you are because what he cares about is what you will be and what he will make you into when he makes you a new creature, right? That's our hope. That's the reason why it matters that Christ came as a baby, as a human, because he had to die as a human. He had to live as a human. He had to be righteous as a human. All of the things that we're about to uncover here in Romans chapter 12 about being a sacrifice tie back to the narrative in Luke. What did Mary and Joseph do? They went up to Jerusalem to fulfill the law. You might say, oh, well, it's nice that you decided to start fulfilling the law now. I mean, clearly up until this point, it hasn't been that important to you. That's what people would have been thinking. Of course, they know that they are righteous and so they can go before God and they can bring the sacrifice. And what they're doing is they're fulfilling everything required of them in Leviticus 12. Now, I know you've all got Leviticus 12 memorized, but just in case you don't, those are the laws of purification after you've had a child. And don't confuse the word purification with being like impure in a moral sense. It, it was just a way for God to really give new mothers an opportunity to be away from everybody so they could focus in on that child. The rules were pretty simple. If you had a male child, after eight days, you're to have the child circumcised, and then for 33 days, you were unclean. And all that meant was that you weren't in public worship. You weren't out among the people. If it was a daughter, it was 66 days. And so you had that time away. And when that time was uh, over, you would then go and you would present a sacrifice. So let's understand the story then with that kind of as a backdrop. After eight days, they go and get Jesus circumcised. What do they do after that? They go back. They go back to where they were in Bethlehem. They maybe go back to the stable. We don't know. There isn't any of that narrative in the Gospels. We don't know what they did for the next several days afterwards because they had to wait for 33 days before they could go back up to the temple again. After 33 days, when Jesus is over a month old, that's when they go back up to Jerusalem. No doubt they wouldn't have walked all the way back to Nazareth and then all the way back down to Jerusalem. My guess is they stayed there in Bethlehem. Oh, and by the way, during that time, the Magi didn't come. I'm just going to weave this in right now. I'm going to get all the disappointment out early in the sermon so that by the end you will have maybe forgotten. The Magi didn't come for a good two years after that. There was no star over the stable. 
In fact, they weren't even in Bethlehem. They were in Nazareth at that point. That's where the wise men went. That's what adds so much horror to the story when Herod goes and kills all the babies two years and younger in Bethlehem because Jesus was 90 miles away in Nazareth. There wasn't any star. There weren't any wise men. There was a baby in a manger. That was the sign the shepherds had. Shepherds, by the way, were peasants. Shepherds were laborers of the lowest order. So not only was it dark and cold, not only was she terrified and had a newborn baby, but a bunch of peasant shepherds show up gawking at this child. Believe me, the scene wasn't quite as pretty as you might think it. But after eight days he circumcised, after 33 days they go up and they offer the sacrifice. And Leviticus says when you go and offer a sacrifice, you bring two animals with you. Okay, one was for a burnt offering, one was for a sin offering. And what you were supposed to do was bring a lamb and bring a bird. And one was given for the burnt offering. This was a sacrifice to the Lord, a way of giving thanks to him for the safe arrival of a child. And the other one was a sin offering. It was given to cover not only the sins of the parents, not because making a child was sinful, but because they are themselves sinners, but also, many scholars believe, because it identified the child themselves as a sinner. Like David says, I was conceived in sin, I was born in sin, I was born a sinner. And so, Mary and Joseph, they make their way up there after these days, and they go to the place to offer the the sacrifice, and they bring with them two birds. Why did they bring two birds and not a bird and a lamb? The reason is because God in his mercy in Leviticus says, if you can't afford a lamb and a bird, you can just bring two birds. Isn't that kind of him? I mean, is it easy to overlook just the simple kindnesses of God? He says, I'm going to ask of you a burnt offering, but if you can't afford the lamb, it's okay. You can just bring two pigeons, two birds, two turtle doves, which, by the way, is where we get the two turtle doves thing in the 12 days of Christmas. Just forget about that. But you could bring those two instead, and so what the priest would do normally is that they would either tear the bird in half or they would just pop the head off, and they would offer that as a sacrifice instead of slaughtering the lamb. (laughs) Why don't we have that tradition at Christmas? Anyway, (laughs) what happened was they offered this sacrifice, and it's interesting to me because they knew they were both sinners, but I believe Mary also knew that she had just given birth to the sinless Son of God. Why would Jesus Christ allow himself to even be the object of that sacrifice in terms of a sin offering that might be for him? It's because we found out later on in the Gospels that he was going to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Christ was going to live the life that you and I should have lived in all righteousness, meaning subject to all of the law, obedient to everything that God had called him to do, go through all of the rituals and all of the standards that were set up. It's why he was baptized by John the Baptist. It's why he did everything he was commanded to do, so that even if you were to look at the law itself, you could say that Christ lived that law perfectly. He was perfect in his passive righteousness as holy God. He was perfect in his active righteousness as a son born under the law. And he grants both of those righteousnesses to us when we put our faith in him. Which means, if you're a Christian today, when you stand before the holy God, not only are you clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ because of God himself, but you're also clothed in the righteous works of Christ. It is never the works you do 
that will get you into the glory of God, and it is never the works that you have done which will keep you from Him if you put your faith in Him. If you don't, then all the works you've got are the works you have done, and you know that even your best work is not a work that isn't tainted from sin. So, Mary and Joseph go. They offer the sacrifices. Then they go home. I want to focus in for a minute on that issue of sacrifice because that's what Paul borrows, that thought, that language, that concept in Romans 12. And because everyone knew what a sacrifice was, it would have been very clear to them, but it might not be clear to us. Most of you have probably not witnessed an animal sacrifice. It's safe to say. I haven't either, in case you're wondering. <laughs> not really into that. But I've watched it on YouTube, and I tell you, it's a much more bloody and loud and chaotic situation that I ever imagined. The people would have known what it meant to sacrifice something because they would have seen it. Animals. And when Paul borrows the language of sacrifice, it's meant to be graphic. So allow your mind to go back to the day when people would take an animal and they would tie it up so that it couldn't run away, and then somebody from very close range would take a long knife and they would slice the main arteries of that animal and allow it to bleed out so they could collect that blood and they could put it on an altar as a sign of the sacrifice that had to be made because Christ said that there is no forgiveness for sin without the remission of, there's no remission of sin without blood. And Paul says, this idea, this vivid idea of sacrifice, let's pick that up. He says, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, I'll read chapter 12, 1 through 8, so you have some context. This is God's word. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members are not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I believe in this section we're going to see over the next several weeks what it means to be a sacrifice of praise to God. What does it mean to be a sacrifice of praise? I'm going to argue that you, uh, you do that by bringing them three things. Three things. You bring them worship. That's the first one. The second one is that you bring him your will. And the third one that you bring him your works. Your worship, your will, and your works. Your worship is there in verse 1, your will in verse 2, and your works in verses 3 through 8. Now, this is really important because 
we have to understand that if we're going to bring an offering to God and it's going to be accepted by him, that it needs to be the offering that he's commanded us to bring. Mary and Joseph didn't say, well, we can't afford a lamb and a bird, so we're going to bring a turtle and a toad. They didn't say, well, we're going to just find something and bring that, or, or we're going to bring this uh, you know, bushel of wheat instead. They, they still conformed to what the expectation was of God. Merciful as he was, he said, well, that means we have to give the right sacrifice. Because to give the wrong sacrifice is to dishonor God. And if you're a priest, to give the wrong sacrifice meant death. So how do we, as the priesthood of God, how do we, as children of God, make sure that we honor him with the sacrifices that we bring? Paul's going to explain that to us right here. And he's going to base all of it on the fact that everything we're supposed to do is for his glory. You'll notice he begins by saying, therefore, or I appeal to you, therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore. It's everything preceding. It's everything in chapters, really, 9 to 11, I would argue, but especially the last part of chapter 11. All of these things are happening for God's glory. The inclusion of the Gentiles that he's writing to happens for God's glory. And so he says, therefore, on account of God being glorified by people like you and I being rescued from our sin, he says, you have to do this, and I'm going to appeal to you. I'm not going to command you. I'm not going to urge you. I'm not going to order you. I'm going to appeal to you. It's a word that means to call from close. He gets right up beside, puts his arm around you, and he says, this is what you got to do. I'm going to call you from alongside. Follow me, therefore, and do this. This is what it means to offer a sacrifice of worship. He says, you're going to do this as my brothers in Christ, and you're going to do it by or through the mercies of God. That is one of the most beautiful statements in all of the Bible. What makes it possible for people like us to approach the very God of the universe and offer a sacrifice? It's his mercy. It's his invitation. It's his kindness. You see, God is a God of comfort. He is a God who says that though you approach me with sacrifices in light of your sin, I am a God who will receive you and will receive the sacrifice and will rescue you from this sin and the judgment. And so he says here, you approach God not on your own merit, not because you're an obedient servant, but because of his mercy. That's the only reason you're allowed in. It's like when Esther is terrified to go in and see the king because she says, if I was not invited to see the king, I could be killed. And Mordecai says, just go in and trust God. He doesn't say, I'm sure it's all going to work out well for you, by the way. Remember that? He says, well, if you perish, you perish. <laughs> go and do it anyway. But to be welcomed in was a sign of grace. And, and notice what he says here. It's the mercy of God. It's the invitation of God. It's the tenderness of God. He's a loving father. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 uses the same word. And it describes it in the context of the, the comfort that we can extend to one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 3 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you see the repetition of the word there? Maybe if he had submitted this to his English teacher, she would have recommended a thesaurus and maybe some different words. But he keeps saying over and over again, it's by the mercies of God that he comforts you, and with that comfort, you can comfort others with the comfort with which you've been comforted. 
comfort being the main word there, main idea, uh, the consolation, the, 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 the reception, the warmth, the mercy. So all of this talk of sacrifice, yes, it's important, but make sure it's understood with the backdrop of God's merciful reception of you. He's inviting you to come and bring the sacrifice that he told you would be effective at worshiping him. You bring him that worship. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 uses the same word as well. You know, this is a wonderful time of year to be merciful. It's a wonderful time of year to show comfort to people. Maybe just think about that as you consider the family gatherings you're going to be having because it is possible uh, that you're going to be interacting with people that you might have a temptation not to be merciful towards. Or maybe as the holiday season progresses and you spend more and more time together, you are less and less apt to be merciful. Or maybe you're on the other side of that and you find the people around you are having to be more and more merciful and tolerating of you. Let us be a people that are defined by that. When you are merciful and when you show comfort to one and when you are gracious and when you are compassionate and when you are merciful, you are like God. He defines himself this way. So in a season where we're thinking about this anyway, let's be deliberate about it in our mercy, deliberate in our kindness, deliberate in the way that we show grace to others. Because it is by that very mercy that we're invited to God to do what? To present your bodies. The word for bodies is um, the word soma in the Greek. It's different than the word sarx, which just means flesh. So let me draw a comparison. When an animal, like a couple of pigeons or a lamb, offers up their body as a sacrifice, not, not that they offer it up voluntarily, it's kind of offered up for them. But when that body is offered up, it is offered up as a sacrifice, not of the body, but of the flesh. It's the flesh and bone and blood that is offered up. It, it's the consuming of the physical body. It is the consuming of the flesh. When, when Paul uses it here, he, he uses the word body as in the opposite of your spirit. So you're two parts, right? You are body and spirit. You are body and soul. There's an immaterial part of you and a material part of you. So he is saying, obviously, as you put your faith in Christ, you're offering up the spiritual part of you. But he says, also offer up the physical part of you. Not to be consumed and burned at an altar, but meaning that who you are as a person is dedicated to the work and the service and the glory of God. Every part of you dedicated to him. And you offer that as a living sacrifice. And not to be put to death and burned up, but to live every single day in a perpetual state of sacrifice to God. And if you do that, it will be holy and acceptable to him. Holy and acceptable. Holy just means separated, set apart. You're not like everybody else. You are different. And acceptable to God is what matters. It's not about acceptable to other people, whether they agree with your sacrifice. It's whether or not God receives it. And he does. And he ends verse 1 in talking about bringing our worship with these words, which is your, my version says, spiritual worship. Which is your spiritual worship. Let's just pause for a moment and ask the question, what is he talking about? What is my spiritual worship? I want to be able to worship God perfectly um, as I can in my, in my flesh. How do I do that? 
He says you offer up this sacrifice of your body, which is spiritual worship. The two don't seem to go together. Let me explain what the word spiritual means here. The the word actually comes from a word that means to reason something through with a divine perspective. I don't know why they use the word spiritual here, because there are other words we could use to describe this. It is reasoning. It's in your mind. It It is the only reasonable conclusion after meditating on divine truth. The only thing that makes sense is to bring this offer of sacrifice. The the only thing that makes sense is to worship this way. I mean, you could translate it, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your divinely reasonable worship. It makes sense. This, by the way, is the same word in 1 Peter 2, verse 2. And it's very interesting because, once again, it is translated differently than you would think. So just listen to what it says. You know the verse. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. We're talking a lot about babies this morning. And here they are, newborn infants. They long for this pure spiritual milk. The word spiritual there could be pure, reasonable, logical, divinely inspired milk. It's not just spiritual as opposed to physical. It's reasonable. It's rational. How does a person grow in Christ? They grow in Christ by taking in what is true and reasonable. We're not asking you to believe something that makes no sense. We're not asking you to embrace a fantasy. We're just asking you to Take God at his word, reason through it, think through it, engage your mind. Peter says, go out there and find places where you can grow in the Lord because your mind is being engaged. If your mind is not being engaged in worship, then you're not truly worshiping. It's just an emotional outpouring. It's just a cathartic exercise. And if the people who are teaching you or leading you are not appealing to your mind and showing you clearly from Scripture what is true, then you're not in a place where you're getting actual spiritual food. You're getting a counterfeit substance, which fills up your stomach and takes away the pain, the alienation for a little while, but does nothing for you in terms of nourishing you, feeding you, or allowing you to grow. And this is why when he says to us that it is your spiritual worship, it's a reasonable, logical, thought-through, biblical worship, and that is what we bring. That is what a sacrifice of praise looks like. The second point is that we have to bring our will. You've got to bring your worship and you've got to bring your will. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed, word that only appears here and in 1 Peter 1. Do not be conformed. It means to be molded into, shaped into this world. But, big contrast, strong adversative in the language, the strongest possible contrast in Greek, but on the absolute opposite side of the spectrum, be transformed. The word metamorphosis from this. Be transformed. It's the the word that was used to describe Jesus at the transfiguration. Remember when he takes uh, Peter, James, and John up to the mountain and he he shows them a, a little glimpse of his glory? 
the same word, transformed. He was transformed in front of them. They were blown away by it. It was so amazing. It was so incredible. It was so beyond their comprehension that they said, what we need to do is to set up some booze and we're just going to stay up here forever with the transfigured, glorified Christ. And, and what made it even more difficult for them is on the way back down, Jesus said to them after witnessing all of these things, by the way, you're not allowed to tell anyone about this. Does that for Paul too, and he takes him up into the third heaven and he reveals the glories of heaven and he says, Oh, by the way, you're not allowed to tell anybody about the details of what you saw. Keeps him humble. But here, the great transformation is not applied to Christ, it's applied to us. Do you realize that you too are transfigured? You're transfigured. You are a different person. When you put your faith in Christ, you're a different person, you're a new creature. The old you is gone. There's that famous, often perhaps overquoted illustration about St. Augustine, but I think it's appropriate here. You know, St. Augustine, before he came to faith in Christ, lived an absolutely profligate life. I mean, he was a wicked and immoral man. And um, much of his sin revolved around the women in the town. And after he came to Christ, one time he was walking in the city and a woman who he used to have relationships with uh, ran up to greet him and he ran away. And she says, but Augustine, it's me. And as he's running, he leans, looks back over his shoulder and he says, yes, but it's not me. It's me, but it's not me. The old me is gone. You're looking for the old me. The old me is gone. I've been transformed. I'm a new creature. And so... We're not conformed to a world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. It doesn't say by the morality of our works, or by the following of the law, or by the quitting of smoking, or by the fill-in-the-blank, all of these external periphery things that people confuse for evidences of salvation. No, there's a renewing of your mind. How do I know you're converted? I know you're converted because your mind has changed. You don't think the same way. How do you think then? If I don't think like I used to, how do I think instead? I am utterly transformed by a new mind because it shows that I can test and discern what is the will of God. That's how you know. Testing that you may discern. Testing that you can approve. You go and you, you take a look at it and, and you decide the quality of it. Is it authentic? Now, this is a show I have not watched and have no interest in. However, in various contexts, I've seen little clips of something called the Antique Roadshow. Evidently, People will stand in line for a long time holding artifacts they've discovered in various attics and basements, and they bring it to an expert in the field, and this person evaluates it. And invariably, the person who brings it thinks, I've found a treasure. This is a, a Picasso, and Uncle Fred just happened to buy it at a sale and stuffed it in the closet, and, and now I'm going to be rich. And, and I assume it mostly ends like this. They bring it to the person, and the person says, no, this is a forgery, this is a fake, this is worthless. But maybe one out of a thousand finds something good, and that like, fuels the desire that maybe I'm going to be the lucky winner this time. 
But what that person does on the Antique Roadshow is that they exercise the discernment. They test something to approve whether it is good or not. They, 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 they take the watch, they take the painting, they take the porcelain, they take the silver, and because of their expertise, they can evaluate it. They have a mind that's been trained to evaluate whether this thing is good or not. And the evidence of a person that is truly converted is a person whose mind is now able to reason and to see and to understand what is the will of God. The will of God is not hidden. Brothers and sisters, the will of God is not hidden. The will of God is here. It's laid out for you over and over again. It is God's will that you be sanctified, 1 Thessalonians 4. It is God's will that you walk in the Spirit. It is God's will that you submit to authority. It is God's will that you rejoice in trials over and over again. All it takes is a discerning mind to see it and obey it. You don't need to go out there and have some alone time in the wilderness where you pray for a direct revelation from God. He's revealed everything for you already. It's right here. Just take the time studying it. And if you do, you will be able to discern what is good. The word here is a word that means intrinsically good, like divinely good. Somebody says to Jesus, good teacher. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good. What he's saying is that, do you really think I'm good? If you're really saying I'm good, you mean I'm God. Now, of course, he was. But the idea is that this is divine good, intrinsic good, holy good. You will identify what is good, the good thing to do, and what is acceptable. Not acceptable to you, but acceptable to God. Look back up at verse 1. There's a line between acceptable to God and acceptable down here. I will know God's will, therefore what I do is acceptable to him. He's the only one I'm concerned about. And it is perfect. Now, this is a word that means complete. It's a word that describes the end, the telos. What does it all point to? What happens when it's made perfect? What happens when it's brought to fruition? What happens when it's ready? You're all going to gather together, Lord willing, around a table over this Christmas time and have a meal together. And likely there's going to be at least some element of that meal that has gone into the oven to be prepared. And it is the case that the person preparing that meal for you will most likely open the oven to check on that roast or that turkey or that casserole or that thing they're making in the oven. And they will open the oven and they will pull it out and they will check to see if it's what? Done or ready. The idea Pull it out, not ready, back in. Out, not ready, back in. You know, back and forth, back and forth. Until that thing is perfect. Until it's complete. Until it's done. Do you see what he's saying? You're able to actually understand God's will that way. I'm able to understand it. Not only the, the, the good and the intrinsic, not, not only what is acceptable to him, but I'm not in doubt as to what he wants me to do. It's there, it's perfect, it's done, it's complete. I see it for what it is and I can embrace it and I can take all the consequences that come from that because I'm absolutely convinced in my mind that it's his will. That's a wonderful way to live, isn't it? Unless that will doesn't conform to yours. I kind of set you up, I'm sorry. Because as a servant of Christ, you give up two things. You give up your identity and you give up your will. 
That was the case of every slave. It's the case of every servant. It's the case of every true follower of Christ. Those are two things you give up. I give up my identity, and I find my identity only in Christ, and I give up my will, and I find my will only in his will and doing his will. So the will of God is something that is good and acceptable and it is perfect, but there are times where it runs contrary to my will, and that's where the real tension comes in. Let's conclude by going back to the story of the nativity. Did Mary and Joseph struggle with sacrificing and submitting their identity to God and their will to God? I believe they did it, but I think it was hard. I mean, what could be more attached to your identity than your reputation? What could be more attached to your identity than your reputation? How does it feel to be called a liar? How does it feel to be called a thief? When you know in your heart you didn't lie and you didn't steal. Is there anything more devastating than watching somebody believe a lie about you. Have you ever experienced that? And what we fight against when that happens is that we're seeing our identity, our reputation being tarnished. Do you think Joseph's reputation was tarnished because of his relationship with Mary? I sure hope you do. What about Mary's reputation? Do you think Mary and Joseph were held up in their town as a model of godliness? Do you think people forget when people have a child out of wedlock in those days? They don't. They were painted with this scandal their entire lives. God never ordained that an angel would speak to heaven and, uh, from heaven and let everybody on earth know that what happened inside of Mary was by his divine order and totally pure. He allowed her to go through the rest of her life and Joseph the rest of his and their marriage and by the way, Jesus' life as well and the other children that they had, allowing other people to believe this about Mary, Joseph, about your parents, fill in the blank. Scandal followed. Did they have to sacrifice their identity? Yes, they did. Was it easy? I don't think so. But they did it because they were willing to honor God. And then what about their will? During this time where we celebrate the birth of Christ, are we prepared in the moments where we talk about what the Lord did through this young couple to acknowledge that they were also willing to do whatever God willed and not what they wanted? You might think it's a great honor to be the mother of the Messiah, but Simeon, when he held up this little one, said to Mary that a sword is going to cut through your heart. Beloved, mothers know pain at a deeper level than anyone else, especially as it relates to their children. And what Mary endured because she was the mother of the Messiah is a pain the likes of which no one else has endured. And so when we talk about submitting our will to God, it doesn't mean that God's will equals your happiness. It just means that God's will is the will he has for his own glory. And it's something we're willing to lay down. Next week, we're going to start talking about the gifts that he gives us. But for this week, I want to talk about the sacrifice we offer him. 
The sacrifice we offer Him and then the gifts that He gives us. The sacrifice we offer is first our worship and second our will. It shows up in our identity and it shows up in our desires, being willing to be forfeited over for whatever brings Him the most glory. And as we celebrate Christmas and as we look at those little nativity sets which are so fun to put together even though the wise men weren't there, I remember playing with those. It was great every year. My mother would set it up in the living room. I don't know if you grew up in a house like this, but we had a living room. It was the room. It was called the living room because no one was allowed to go there, I guess. Like we were never allowed in the living room. Like the living room had the good couches in it that you weren't allowed to be on and all the, all the stuff. Like, and she had these things, these figurine things. They were made of, of, of um, porcelain um, and they were dolls and um, uh, I can't remember what they're called now. They come from England, I think. And, and, and so I just remember because I, I sometimes would play with them and inevitably they would get decapitated. So I do remember, even as a child, seeing like the glue around their neck, like a necklace, and it was just glue because apparently they don't mix well with G.I. Joes. And neither does the nativity scene because my G.I. Joes always made their way into the nativity scene too, which was actually kind of a fun thing to do until I, I got in trouble. But when you look at that nativity scene and, and, and you see how sterilized it's become. Can I just invite you as a reasoning person using your mind that God is renewed now to just allow yourself to remember how scandalous that was, what lack of comfort they had, what absence of mercy and grace was shown, how they were willing to sacrifice their identity and their reputation, and how they yielded their will entirely to God and to this little Savior that was born to them that day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel that this child born to Mary lived the perfect life that we could never live in order that he might die the death that we deserved so that he could put to death sin and death and hell, and apply that righteousness to all who put their trust in him. For anyone here today who hasn't truly considered that reality, oh God, I ask that you would open up their eyes. You have told us that Christ is a light to the Gentiles, so be that light to them today. Remind them of the truth of the gospel that there is no deed they have ever done that can separate them from your love, and that there is no deed they will do that will increase your love for them, that there is only that which you have called us to be in terms of your sacrifices. Help them and all of us to be willing to lay down our will, lay down our identities in order to find them in you. And if there is one who has not yet been converted, not yet been made a new creature, that today would be the day of salvation. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you would open their eyes, that they would know your salvation, that they would experience true redemption, that they would be able to offload that heavy burden of guilt and shame and self-salvation and all the religion that they have been taught, and they could dump all of that at your feet, knowing that you'll take it and replace it with a burden you've said is light, 
as the hymn writer put it, to see the law of Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, can turn a slave into a child and duty into choice. May we reflect what it's like to love and serve and obey you out of choice because of all that you've done for us in Christ. Receive that sacrifice from us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.